Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. Welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins, joined as always by Adam Sapi. We are here week in and week out talking about all things talent, especially as it relates to the med tech and greater life sciences industry. I am going to share some, some details towards the end of the show as far as how you can find the other episodes and kind of what to look forward to. But right now, we're going to jump into today's topic. And that is something we haven't really covered since the inception of this show. How do uh, creative ways to build talent pipelines looking forward into 2023? And uh, joining us on the show are longtime friends of ours and longtime friends of the show, Nick Swig and Shannon Hayes, veteran talent acquisition leaders in their own right. And guys, I'm sure each one of you would be hard-pressed to disagree with me that most of recruiting happens in a reactive fashion versus proactive. And in a way, it's kind of the nature of the beast. You know, resignations are usually unforeseen, and so therefore it puts you in a natural reactive state. Or the hiring manager you know, thought they were going to hire this person three weeks ago, they changed their mind. And then a month later, you find out, oh, yeah, we do need this person. Whereas you could have been a month ahead of the game had you just stayed the original course. So there's a lot of reasons why hiring happens in reactive fashion. But what I want to focus on today is assuming the, the fact that you have an opportunity to start proactively building talent pipelines for future roles or for future, you know, additions to the team. I want to talk about creative ways that we can be able to do that. And so I'm going to jump right in here and ask you guys, are you in agreement with me that most hiring does happen? It just seems to be the nature of the beast that it does happen in reactive fashion. Absolutely. And so I've got a slew of ideas to share today, as I'm sure you guys do. That's why we value having you here is, is all the input that you do provide. But if I was to ask you uh, over the course of your career, are there any creative methods or creative strategies you put together that really stick out to you? Like, man, we really did something that was uh, kind of outside of the box. I don't know that I have an example that I'd necessarily think of outside of the box, although the truth is because it's so rare for anybody to deploy a proactive recruiting model, I think any activities uh, you might consider actually outside the box. But, you know, from my perspective, one of the most important pieces of building a proactive recruiting model is to build the process or system around how do we collect the data that we're acquiring uh, as we're pipelining for various different jobs across the country at different sites? And then how do we find that data again when the time comes that we're shifting more into a reactive mode? So I think uh, all of the ideas one could deploy as far as proactive recruiting depend on the ability to organize and recall that data when, when you need it. So I think that's the starting point from my perspective. I, I don't know that I would even bother with any proactive recruiting efforts if I didn't have a system, a CRM in place that could track all of that. Well, I think even a, a really basic system, ATS or even an Excel spreadsheet where you can do a, a mail merge, because I think that one of your biggest assets 
is the the network that you build both through your your direct applications as well as you know just your your reach as an employer. So you guys feel like, hey, it's one thing to get creative and start talking to them all this kumbaya stuff that sounds well and good, but if you don't have the fundamentals in place, it's going to be hard to iterate upon that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I think Shannon's exactly right. It doesn't have to be a you know a, a job science or some of these big expensive fancy bells and whistle platforms it could be as basic as an excel um, and, and i've used that more times than i've used systems but i think you have to have some plan that this is where our data is going to go because if you're collecting business cards and those are on your desk and resumes are in a folder and um you know uh, presentations from conferences you've been to those are you know in a different folder in a filing cabinet how do you find that talent again when it's sort of scattered about but if you've got some organization be it uh, in a crm in excel um, then I think you, you have the ability to capitalize on the data that's going in and actually turn it into value. And that, Absolutely. And I, you so know. I would say the power of recollection is huge, right? In terms of, like for me, I it's not an ego thing. It's just kind of the way my brain works. I can really recall things when it comes to conversations that I've had or people be like, oh, they wanted a job and, you know, X, Y, Z around June timeframe. And I remember that for some reason. And so I'm more, uh, I lean on that piece more than like somebody like Adam, for example, is the exact opposite where he keeps detailed notes in a certain spot on his computer and has a hot list running and knows where to go back. But either way, I absolutely agree that you've got to have some form of the, some ability to be able to recall information quickly. And so what you're doing is you're being proactive with how you store your information so that you can meet the reactive nature of recruiting and kind of have the two merge together when when you need it. But I want to push you guys, though. You know, when I talk about creative strategies, I'm talking about, you know, one idea is take regulatory affairs example. Regulations are constantly changing. There's all this stuff going on with EUMDR. Now they're start talking about proposals on how they're going to push back the deadlines or with digital health. There's so many standards and regulations that are coming out because it's a new world. I mean, it's a newer world that's only going to get more and more gray as as far as what is a um, a product that is has an impact on one's well-being from a medical standpoint versus a product that doesn't necessarily need to be regulated. And there's a, a big gray area, right? So the FDA is trying to keep up with that. So let's just say that an organization decided, you know what, we're going to take the reins. Industry at large is struggling with this. We're going to take the reins and we're going to create a webinar. And we're going to invite anybody who wants to come that would find value from this information. Well, what are we doing? Positioning ourselves as a center of influence. We're building authority and credibility with a market that we may compete with, but we also may serve or we may want to hire from, right? And what we're doing is we're starting to build that report indirectly from, I've got a job, do you want a job? And so by nature of whoever shows up to that webinar, they're now in your center, they're in your sphere, which you can then now take steps to nurture that audience and build relationships with that audience. And before you know it, you're talking about how does this person come and work with you guys because they're impressed with what you do, you're impressed with what you've learned about them and bada bing, bada boom. So that's one avenue idea of creativity. If I give that as an example, does that jog your mind about anything else that you've either done or ideas that you'd like to share as far as ways that you can build your, your pipelines? You know, I think one of the things that I did with my team, especially during the pandemic or when there's been, you know, that big buzzword layoffs is, and this is this is really more for U.S.-centric recruiting, is I keep an eye on the the state and county DOL sites because a lot of companies and, you know, various states, especially, they're required to notify certain government agencies that they're going to be doing layoffs 
listing the type of workers that are being laid off. And then it comes in a letter. So somebody's got to sign it. And especially like way back in the day when when I recruited for for hospitals and I recruited nurses, we'd swap lists with other hospitals so that we could redeploy people. But you can always reach out. Usually it's somebody at HR and that HR person does not want to see their valuable people laid off. But you can reach out to them and say, hey, I hear that this is happening. You know, we'd love to help keep your these valued people employed and and we'd love to chat with them about redeploying them. I think that's a great one. And I use that one regularly. And I think the folks that have been laid off, number one, they want the experience interviewing. So even if you don't have an open role, it's very easy to get time with them, but it it brings value to them uh, because they get some experience. They remember because a lot of times people are laid off after having worked at the company for five or 10 years. They haven't interviewed in a while. Um, one of my tricks is, and it's, it doesn't sound like a trick at first, right? Go to conferences. That, that doesn't sound out of the box at all. But what every recruiter does when they quote unquote go to a conference is they get a table in the expo center, right? And now that's a reasonable approach for reactive recruiting because the reality is most of the people walking through there are actively seeking. That's why they're in that expo center. Um, or they want the squishy kidneys and the other giveaways. For me, I don't get a table at the expo. I register for the conference myself, whether it's regulatory or quality formulation sciences. And then in these seminars, I have the opportunity, number one, to upskill myself so I better understand the function. I'm more effective as a recruiter when I'm screening uh, talent. But I'm also meeting all of these people around me in these, these seminars, having conversations, and they're less sort of specific, right? There's that intentional we're hiring approach in the expo center. But when you're in a seminar, if you're in the conference itself, it's much more about networking, learning from one another, exchanging business cards. So I have found much better relationships come when I actually attend the conference. Uh, And then again, I get the information. I learn a lot more about the function as well. So that's one of the the tricks I tend to use. And I think if you're on like a bootstrap budget. Like I know that my previous employer, we didn't have the budget to go to conference or send anybody to conference. You can do the same thing with webinars, you know, sign up with your local or national chapters for whatever, you know, niche area that you're looking at. And you know, attend their free webinars. It's and I would say about 50% of the time when I've joined a webinar, it's not just your traditional like just viewing the speakers. You can see every single person that's joined and you can kind of like jot them down if you aren't quite sure that you know you're gonna get a list of attendees or something like that. I think that Nick, you called out probably the biggest mistake that organizations or people make conference-wise, and that is spending all the money, getting a booth. Now, I'm not talking about the multi-billion dollar companies that are going to have a booth regardless. I'm talking about smaller organizations that think we're going to get a booth. We're going to stand here. People are going to come to us. We're going to see all this traffic just kind of end. Instead, what you should be out there doing is being out on the floor, shaking hands, meeting people, being where they are socializing instead of just coming up to your booth to grab a keychain, hear, you know, about the latest technology and move on. I just think that there's so much more power to being active and out on the floor. Now, if you have the luxury of having a booth and having a team that's out on the floor, you catch them at all angles. But signing up for the conference and being out there and networking that way absolutely is a surefire way way to go. The other thing I want to talk about is company referral programs. So 
Let me ask you a question before I kind of give you my two cents. Both of you guys, with the organizations that you've worked for, either now or in the past, have you have your companies had formal uh, referral programs, employee referral programs in place? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And how much emphasis was put on it internally? Uh, a lot. So my former company, um, we, we were quite small. We had no brand recognition, essentially a startup with no commercial products, right? And so we had to leverage that internal referral program pretty heavily. By the end of the first year of that first program we implemented, we had just over 40% of our hires driven by that program. So I, I don't think that's a target that's realistic most of the time. We had a highly engaged workforce, but those are, you know, research has shown consistently your best hires. Uh, because the people referring that talent understand the company, the culture, the unique pros and cons, and they, they're in that position to be able to refer talent that does align really nicely. Um, so to me, it's got to be a cornerstone of every recruiting strategy. And I, I think you're missing the boat uh, if you don't have one. And I would, I mean, just in the context of this show, a lot of companies have a program for open positions, a way to refer talent for open positions, the reactive, but they fail to create that mechanism for proactive recruiting, right? So that anybody who has a referral, you know, I, I, this person who's a senior financial analyst, you don't have any senior financial analyst positions open. I still want that referral. I still want to have that conversation. Yeah. I want to build that pipeline. So making sure that your employee referral program allows for referred talent for jobs that simply aren't open. I love that you brought mm -hmm. that point up. So in the third-party world, in third-party search, more often than not, a search firm will get credit with an organization as the procuring cause for bringing talent forward for a period of either anywhere from six months to roughly 12 months, okay? So if a company got introduced by a candidate initially by that recruiter, and they ultimately hire that person within one year of the data referral, they would pay the search firm as the referral source. Companies need to do something exactly the same internally. Look, we don't have a job today. We might in three months, but I want to incentivize our employees. We want to incentivize our employees to constantly be flooding us with talented people that we may be able to hire at some point or not. And then it's up to us as an organization to figure out our nurturing strategy of we don't have something for you today, but clearly X, you know, XYZ Joe down the down the hall thinks highly of you. We're going to do our best to build a relationship with you now and consistently and stay in touch so that we can capitalize on hiring you when it's time. And then and I think be able to reward the employee to not hold back, to not de-incentivize somebody, say, oh, we don't have any jobs now, I'll deal with it later, and then it's too late, but to incentivize them to bring it up early and often. Shannon, you had a point to make. Yeah, well, Mitch, you and Nick both said two keywords that I think are critical to success of any sort of referral program and pipelining in general, and that is relationship and engagement. So it's not, I am going to say this from experience, if you're a, an employer and you have an, a referral program or it's brand new, you know, don't play the old, is the spaghetti ready game and throw it out there and hope that it's going to work. Get your, the people that are doing the hiring in with those teams. So, you know, I would want to go to department meetings so that the engineering team, for example, knows who I am so that when, you know, Susie Q has a referral, it's not just like, oh, go and apply and put my name in there. It is, hey, Susie, send me your resume because I want to send it directly to Shandon. And then Shandon, engage 
with that candidate and build a relationship, not just with the candidate, but with the employees and the teams that you're hiring for. So I think it's it's a multi-pronged approach, but it goes back to some of those recruiting fundamentals, which is, I know, Nick and I talking about fundamentals, so strange. It is like, hey, if you get an inquiry, especially from a referral, follow up with them. I had a standing rule with my previous team that if you got a referral, you follow it up with them, even if they were grossly unqualified. And you explain to them why this isn't a good match, but here are the strengths that we see. I'd love to stay in touch with you. Imagine a white glove process where you don't have, the company doesn't have a job today, but they got a referral. The hiring manager reaches out and introduces and say, hey, we're so glad to be aware of your skill set. Here's what's going on in our team. Here's kind of our plans over the next few months. The HR or talent acquisition representative reached out. Thanks so much. And here's a list of resources that maybe might help you in the meantime. You know, even though we can't hire you now, here's some things that can help you. And uh, by the way, and then they get, you know, some sort of company swag in the mail a week later, whatever it is. I'm not saying you had to go crazy, but I'm saying imagine the difference makers that these things can do for your organization as far as pipelining talent. If you treated somebody that way that you didn't even have a position for, can you imagine what they're thinking, how you treat your employees and how you treat people when they do have open positions? And I want to call out the elephant in the room. There's two of them. One is we're in a market right now that is pretty, there's polar opposites happening We see all the layoffs happening on one end every single day, major, major companies, small biotechs, companies that we thought were doing great. They're laying off 20% of the workforce. On the other hand, there's companies that can't keep up and they're trying to hire as fast as they can because they've got major product launches coming. Some people may be sitting here listening to this saying, this is all well and good, but the market's loosening up. There's people on the street. I just posted a job, not me. I'm just saying as an example, I posted a job and I got 40 qualified applicants to, this is all well good. I'm going to save this episode for when things are tough. Start, even if that's the case, Implement then now while the getting's good so that when it is tough, you're not starting from ground zero again, trying to figure out we need to find talent the ways we know how, plus implement all these new things at the same time. That's not possible either. So there never really is going to be a good time to create change. But if you do create change that is better in the long run, you might as well start now. Right. Totally. And I think, too, and and this may sound very unorthodox. But, you know, your company might be the company that's doing the layoffs and you have a network recruiter, a buddy of yours that's working at another company that's doing hiring. Like, or you get this surplus of profiles, you know, share them with the, you know, sharing is caring. I don't think that you also need to hoard it for yourselves because I think that what goes around comes around. And I know that with the three of you on this call, we've done that with each other from time to time. Like, hey, this person is so rock solid. They were a really close silver medalist or something along those lines. I really want to see them land with a great company like yours. I also agree, Mitch, you made a comment about the you know, hey, the market's really good right now. I don't have to invest in the proactive. And the reality is proactive recruiting is sort of like a retirement plan. It it isn't like a paycheck. It's not going to have an immediate ROI. It's something that you chip at slowly over the course of a long period of time that will have and pay dividends in the long term. So I, I would say it is exactly the right time to start doing more proactive recruiting because we know that the market is cyclical. And so if today is the market that favors recruiters, and I I think that's debatable right now, but it is debatable. Let's let's assume that that's the the assumption a recruiter has. We know the market's going to come back around, right? So, you know, the time to start proactive recruiting is not when you're in a scarcity market. 
because now the amount of time and energy that has to go into the reactive recruiting just to keep your head above water, it doesn't allow for that kind of stuff. And so uh, this is the time to start thinking through the strategy and building that out for your organization so that when times get tough, you immediately have that piggy bank of talent that you can rob. And Adam, I want to make sure to involve you as well. We were talking earlier about, you know, looking over the course of your career, are there any creative strategies you pulled out of your bag in an effort to build a a talent pipeline? Does anything stand out to you? Anything you want to add along the lines of creativity? Yeah, and I apologize for the tech issue. So I don't don't know what was going on, but uh, so I apologize if you had already covered this, but I was thinking to myself, you know, kind of podcast or or YouTube is the new Google for me. So if I'm meeting somebody new or or working with somebody, I'm going to search them first. Maybe they have their own podcast. If not, at least they've been a, a guest a few times or they've done a TED Talk. I know when I've recruited for companies before where the hiring manager has been a guest or, or the founder of the company, for that matter, um, has been a guest on a podcast or has had a TED Talk, a, an actual link I can I can send somebody and they can watch a 20-minute you know, video meeting or video conversation from that person. Holy cow, is that that powerful? Um, and that's already to the reactive stage. Like they're already interested in, in interviewing with her or him. But imagine if you're the subject matter expert and you're already out there, that many more people are going to be drawn to you um, in addition to the networking piece, which I think we were going to talk about, or you, know, you guys might've covered both virtually and in person, you know, getting to the conferences, you know, that's a that was a thing before COVID. And I think it's got to return to that get to the RAPS convergence. I think last year was in Arizona and get to get to the conferences uh, in your space, be visible, shake hands with people during the breaks when you're grabbing a coffee and a cookie, talk to people, you know, and stay connected that way. I think that's going to be a big, a big strategy, a winning strategy from in 2023 and, and, and before and, and moving on. Definitely. And you can, you can do other things that are more fun too. So one of my more fun, it's probably not the most creative, but uh, more fun for me uh, was I would go, and I'm lucky because I'm in Massachusetts, right? So we have like 700 some odd companies in the life sciences. So it's easy to do something like this, but uh, there's a street in Cambridge called Sydney Street, at least 15 different pharmaceutical biotech companies on the street. In fact, that's the only thing that's really on that street. So I'd go to the bar at the end of the day, I would order a beer and I would nurse over hours and I would just listen to the conversations around me. And whenever that opportunity presented itself, you know, someone I heard we might have a layoff, I'd, I'd always kind of turn around and say, I'm, I'm so sorry to happen to hear you. I'm a recruiter. You know, I don't mean to interrupt, but here's my business. <laughs> That's cool. I really love it. This stuff is you know, shady. I don't know how you want to describe it, but here I am enjoying having a beer, right? So I'm enjoying my life while also doing proactive recruiting. It doesn't always have to be a, a conference or a formal type. Yeah. Thing. You can be I call that it's a win win strategy, Nick. Yeah, for sure. And your CFO is like, why are you writing off this pub tab again, Nick? This is crazy. <laughs> it's. It was a work expense, I promise you. Yeah. Well, you'd be That's surprised cool. how many confidential things people say at the bar, especially after the first drink or two. So <laughs> you want to know who's doing layoffs and who's having problems with a clinical trial, just sit at the bar and listen by yourself. Sense. <laughs> the other thing I want to continue to harp on is the value, the importance of a content strategy online. And, and Adam talked about, you know, founders of companies that he's seen time and time again being on a podcast. And all of a sudden, the person keeps showing up in the feed. This person had him on this show. It, all, it starts to be like a circuit. It's like, this yeah. guy's everywhere. 
He obviously knows what he's doing. He, otherwise, he wouldn't be on all these shows. Now you see him as an authority figure, an influence figure. You look more into the company as to what's going on. You, you understand more about their technology. Now you're interested. Now you have a conversation with a friend. And you say, I listen to this guy on so many shows. You should check out the company. All of a sudden, you're building an indirect pipeline of talent simply by giving value to the market that you serve by way of being yep. a guest on a show, right? Yep. But the other elephant in the room that I wanted to call out before was, this is hard, hard work. This sounds like a lot, you guys. You're asking me to talk about building content strategies and, and tweaking our referral program and making sure that our foundation is in place with how we bring people into our CRM and a white glove introduction to referrals that we don't even have jobs for. Like this, we've got our own jobs to deal with. And especially these days, we're fighting for our jobs with, you know, our requisitions are, yeah. are falling yeah. off and I've got to, you know, be as valuable as I can to our company now. Well, if your organization also looks at the long game and not just the short game, these are major, major value adds to your organization. And I would argue when your rec load is less than ideal and you can implement some of these strategies, you're actually adding value to the organization in a, a way that demonstrates this is somebody that we really need to figure out how to keep with the company. If they're bringing these types of ideas and implementing them, and we're not telling them to do that, but they're doing it and showing us the, the potential ROI, this is somebody we got to make sure to keep a spot for. So look at it from the long game as well. When I say content, I don't mean, I really, really, really do not mean corporate speak content of, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Corporate speak yeah. from a corporate's point of view. I'm talking about humanizing the content. I'm talking about the day in the life that you just had and what you learned and how you tripped. Nick, I'm going to use your content recently as a great example. Nick posted a picture of a beer on a table. And I want you to tell the story because I don't remember the context, but it was super real. It was super Nick, if you know Nick. Like you could tell it was his voice and he was trying to make a point and the thing got so much engagement and so many people chimed in from this one piece of content of a picture of a beer on a table. So what I'm talking about is human content that people can relate to, but that it and creates value and some sort of lesson that can help these people move their own professional lives forward because they're going to start to look at you more and more as a center of influence. They're naturally going to start to trust you. They're naturally going to start to be curious about how to work with you or for you. And you're going to start having this other uh, avenue of talent building strategy. But Nick, will you share more about the post that I'm referencing? Yes. Well, of course, many people had this storm over the holidays and myself included. We lost power. So uh, I, I canceled my day. I had no electricity, no internet. And what are you going to do if you live alone? You're going to go to the bar where there's electricity. And um, it occurred to me that although I couldn't formally do work, work, right, I could still be engaging the, the network that I have built. And I don't believe in, you know, hey, I'm hiring for director of IT. Hey, I'm hiring for this. It's really important to me to post my brand. And when I say my brand, I don't mean the brand that a marketing company built for my company. The brand is me right? It's my values, it's my preferences, the things I enjoy doing. And what happens is when you are authentic and, and you're yourself, people do engage with that content. They notice where you were, they go to your career page, and they start looking for those opportunities. And so there's, it's not as targeted as, say, posting a specific job. But the problem with just posting a job is you know, my network is made up of professionals across every discipline you could imagine, specifically in the pharma, biotech, and medtech space. 95% of them don't care about a director of IT job I've gotten in Massachusetts. It's not useful. 
So post useful and interesting, engaging content, let the talent figure out if there's an opening right now that aligns with their background. But I, I've always believed that you have to be your true authentic self to get people to actually follow you. That's, yeah. that's just the reality is everybody senses and knows when you're just uh, fake and uh, strategically being a certain way. You know what I mean? And maybe not the most professional post I've ever had, right? It was a beer midday on a Friday, but you know, <laughs> that was my life. But really? so many people related to it. That's the whole point. And in, in the time of year, you know, had something to do with it as far as what you were trying to say at that specific time of the year with the holiday season, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is it was relatable. People felt like, oh, it's my buddy Nick or, oh, you know, this guy, you know, that seems great. I would do the same thing. And they can see themselves in the post is the point. And that's usually the most, you know, the posts that do the best is somebody who's being authentic and real. And I think real quick too, and, and if you are not a brilliant content creator like Mitch and Nick. I certainly fall into that category. I call it content creation for introverts. If you don't feel comfortable, you don't know what to say, you can just simply like the post, engage with the post. You can share that post. It's like, yeah, right on. Those are really simple ways that you can start to build comfort with creating that content and putting yourself out there because that can be a little bit scary and some of us just don't have a knack for it. I love the data and the, you know, I'll I'll go research all the Google words and then I'll put it into my post <laughs> first. So, but it's really easy to just build those connections through those little, little, teeny, tiny, seemingly insignificant acts that will actually boost your profile in the algorithms. I'm glad this is well, guys, in the spirit of, of trying to bring things... Oh, go ahead, Nick. I was just saying, I'm glad it's recording because Shannon said I'm a master content creator. It, I'm going to have to re-listen to that. That is so far from the truth. I post what's literally on my head. Um, but thank you, Shannon. I will take the compliment. You put it on your yeah, business she didn't card. See me. Right? Yeah, I rolled my eyes thinking, yeah, okay, okay, Shannon. But <laughs> in the spirit of trying to bring this episode to a close and, and kind of keep within the, the usual time, I just want to throw out a few other ideas and then give it to you guys to see if there's anything else you want to add. And then we'll sign off until uh, next week's episode. But one, with regards to your current recruiting strategies and your talent pipeline building strategies, look Take the time to look at what is giving you the highest ROI right now. Look at where are we getting maximum ROI and put go, double down on it. Put as much into it as you can. And then back off on some of the things that you're investing in that really aren't giving you a return. But I want to also encourage you and caution you that you should always, always, always be testing. Yes, double down on the stuff that's really working, but always still test other avenues because the thing that is giving you the highest ROI right now may not tomorrow. There's so many things that change with technology and the way people consume information and look for information that you've always got to be trying to test and stay ahead of the curve as much as you can. And while at the same time, maximizing what is working today. The other thing I want to mention is the candidates who are interviewing with you right now for other functional areas. For example, you've got a director of finance who's coming in for an, op for an interview, but you're really struggling to hire this senior regulatory affairs specialist throw it out to him. Hey, who's the best regulatory person that you've worked with? I don't know if they're going to be interested, but they might know some folks because we're really, you know, people try to be creative. Like it's not a one-track mind. I got to talk to regulatory people to, to meet other regulatory people. Who else is a center of influence that may have crossed centers with those functional areas? And then recently hired folks outside of your employee program when you're hopefully you're doing some sort of check-in about the onboarding process. How are things going? Do they have the resources they need? 
What did they like about getting onboarded? What do they wish would have been different? Especially in those moments where they're super high on the company and they're super excited. Great opportunity to say, hey, I want to pick your brain. We're recruiting on these roles. Our TA team's struggling because of XYZ. What do you think we should do? Or who do you know? So start thinking outside like your normal mind tracks and start asking yourself, who have we not talked to today that may have a track to somebody we're trying to get to? Without uh, further ado, I'm going to ask you guys for any final thoughts and then we're going to close out the show. I would just say invest, invest, invest in proactive recruiting. Um, it may, doesn't have to be half your day. It doesn't have to be you know 90% of your work. But if you continue to make incremental uh, investments every single day, every week, the payoff will be profound in the long run. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think there's too much more that a recruiter can do to get off of the treadmill uh, than to, to really make that investment. Yeah, ag- agreed. And, you know, if if you're feeling overwhelmed with this list, just start with one thing. It seems interesting. You know, devote five, 15 minutes to investigating it. Not only will that give you some feedback as to whether it might be viable or not, but it could actually refuel you as well. I would just piggybacking on that, too. You know, I think it's crucial. It's kind of the micro and the macro. Both are going at the same time. And if you're a talent acquisition person, I mean, how much value are you bringing to your hiring manager saying, hey, yeah, it's a soft market right now. Everyone's, you know, we posted this and we have 18 people that applied. Here are the 18 active candidates. In addition to that, though, here are four people that we've been nurturing for 18 months. So you have active candidates and passive candidates. You can get all of them and vet, we'll vet this out efficiently, but then you'll know for sure, hey, I'm hiring the best of the best, not just whoever's available this three-week period because of unfortunate layoffs. So I think that's that's crucial. Mm-hmm. And, and I have my own take on why maybe that disconnect is. And I think part of it is because a lot of talent acquisition folks are on three or six or nine month contract. So they're, they're like, hey, I'm hustling. You know, this company brought me in to hire 75 salespeople by the 4th of July and then I'm out. So I'm not even worried about that. So I think that comes from the top down, but that's a, probably a show uh, for another topic. And then I think just big picture, the publications are great. The, you know, the, the webinars and, and blogs and everything else. But I think col- it comes down to culture too. If you're a phenomenal hiring manager, guess what? Your, your people are going to spread the word. They're going to tell their friends, oh my gosh, you got to join this place. If your company's great and you know, I'm going to refer people whether you have an official referral program or not because I want my friends and my neighbors and whoever's cool, I want them to be part of something special. So I think you know, maintaining that as, as a focal point too. You know, like Nick said, if you're not authentic, if it's, if it's just trying to game the system, people are going to see through that. So if, if it's really uh, for a good cause and you have something that you're excited about, um, that's going to that's gonna you know, kind of spider web. And one last thing to tie into what you just said, it's it's even more critical, I think, in smaller organizations of how you build your brand because you don't have as many mistakes to be able to make and still yeah. and still recoup. For example, if I said that there was a regulatory job available with Apple today, a gazillion people probably want to work for Apple, right? A gazillion people don't like Apple. A gazillion people do like Apple. Apple still has a brand that people want to go after. If XYZ company with 150 people has a couple negative experiences and that word travels, it's a lot yeah. harder to uh, recover from that. So it really is important to set, set clear understanding for the entire company. What do you stand for? Why do you stand for that? And what are you going to do to be consistent with that each and every day so that when people do hear about 
XYZ company, they're getting the exact same experience. Yeah. But great stuff today, guys. I really, really enjoyed this topic. I think there's probably much more to it, but I think it's a great springboard that our audience can leverage. And a lot of good ideas came up today that I wasn't even thinking about as well. So thank you to uh, each one of you. Guys, we're here each Wednesday, 11 o'clock Pacific, 2 o'clock Eastern with a live show. Uh, we've got almost, I think, almost 60 or more episodes at this point now. Uh, so many different guests from across the industry with all different types of topics and insights that you could check out anywhere that you consume your podcast content. And then if you got any suggestions as to topics you'd like to cover us to cover in the future, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or via email. And uh, we'd love to hear from you as well. So thanks so much. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.